Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Cal. I'm Cal. Uh, I'm so grateful um, to have been able to serve for the past two years. Uh, the past year in that capacity as a pastoral assistant. I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach this morning. Um, so as, as we come to the Old Testament Christian scripture, let's pray one more time uh, to the God who's given this to us. Father God, you are true. We thank you that you've given us scripture and the truth therein to comfort us, to, to fill our hearts with the knowledge of your peace that comes through Christ. We pray that we would see him this morning clearly in the book of Jonah. We pray that that would be a comfort to us, that we would rejoice in the work that you have done in Christ and the work that you have done in, in each of our lives here at Wernal Road Baptist Church. So prepare our hearts now as we have sung the word, as we have prayed the word, to hear the word preached. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been talking about and singing about affliction and grief this morning. Well, how many of you, uh, if you come across a friend or a family member or someone who is experiencing that grief, would, would choose to comfort them with, with the phrase, well, God works in mysterious ways. Um, that phrase has become so cliche and so trite that it would pretty much be inappropriate to, to say that first thing if you hear of someone's, someone's grief. Uh, it's more appropriate to use that when, when maybe something fortunate happens or a happy accident. Uh, maybe you forget your keys, so you go back and you see your wallet was there on the counter too, and you say, God works in mysterious ways. Um, but the one who made that phrase famous, William Cooper, a friend of, of the, the poet John Newton that we know from Amazing Grace, uh, he meant that phrase precisely for those times of deep grief. He was a man himself who experienced prolonged periods of darkness. Hear what he wrote. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. In the lives of his saints, God brings affliction and has good saving purposes in them. God, in his kind providence, uses affliction to show that salvation belongs to the Lord. And in our passage this morning in Jonah 2, God has afflicted Jonah with more suffering than Jonah's ever experienced in order to bring him to a point where he sees that salvation belongs to Yahweh alone. 
Salvation's not partially God's, partially Jonah's. It's not uh, deserved by Jonah or earned by Jonah. Salvation belongs to Yahweh alone. As we saw a few weeks ago in in Jonah 1, Jonah's brought this situation upon himself. Uh, If we recall, God calls Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh, but Jonah goes down. He goes down into a ship, down to Tarshish, and eventually he's thrown down into the sea. Is there feedback that's bothering anyone? All right. So, uh, that's where we are this morning. Jonah's been thrown into the sea, and uh, that's where we're picking up. He's been swallowed by a great fish, uh, and, and, and we're brought to a point where Jonah is forced to confess that salvation belongs to the Lord. So, uh, as we did last time, I would encourage you to go to your table of contents to find this small Uh, in in some Bibles, one or two page book uh, to find Jonah. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 774 and we'll read Jonah 2 together. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, And you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. What we get in this chapter is is a pause from the chaos of chapter 1. We have this fast-moving story of of Jonah and and of this storm and affliction. And then now in chapter 2, we're brought down into the sea, down into the belly of a whale down into Jonah's very heart, into his mind, where he calls out to God. He calls out in this this prayer, this poem, this song, where he's pouring his soul out while he's trapped in this fish for three days and three nights. As we look at this prayer, I hope we can learn from it um, that when the Christian faces affliction, his response is prayer, his hope is in Christ— And his joy is that salvation belongs to the Lord. So when the Christian faces affliction, his response is prayer. You see, Jonah prayed, he called out, he cries to the Lord. His response is prayer, his hope is in Christ. Jonah looks to his holy temple. 
to Christ. And his joy ultimately is that salvation belongs to the Lord. So let's begin by looking at Jonah's prayer and see how the afflicted Christian ought to pray. Whether that affliction has been brought on uh, directly by our own sin, whether we're suffering unjustly at the hands of another, or whether it's a trial God's brought into our lives that, that has seemingly nothing to do with ourselves or another, whether it's an illness or injury. So let's see first in Jonah's prayer how honest he is about his affliction. Jonah is honest about his affliction. As I said, he's, he's facing brutal affliction now, and he pours out his soul to God about it. He's not pulling any punches or trying to diminish his suffering. He's not soldiering up and, and, and putting on a tough face. Look at the language he uses. He says, from the belly of Sheol, Hades or hell, from the deep, from the heart of the sea, the flood, he's under God's waves and billows. He felt driven from God's sight as the waters closed in. The deep surrounded me, he says. Uh, weeds were wrapped around my head and my life was fainting away. These are the cries of someone who is facing heavy affliction. Think of uh, the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Um, the, the, the author Horatio Spafford in the first stanza when, says, When sorrows like sea billows roll, Jonah is literally experiencing what, the, that, what Horatio Spafford, what the author of um, the psalmist in Psalm 42 that we read earlier this morning and others use for uh, a metaphor for their affliction. Jonah is literally experiencing. He equates his experience of being in the fish to death and hell itself. From the belly of Sheol I cried. He says right there in verse 2. So this is miserable, but this is far more than physical affliction. This is deeply spiritual affliction that Jonah is facing. Navy SEALs famously go through uh, what's called Hell Week in a part of their training, where they're made by their instructors as miserable as they can be possibly made. Uh, for a week, they're deprived of sleep. They're put in cold water. They're pushed literally to the breaking point of the human body. But countless men in the 60-year history of the SEALs have endured that. This, what Jonah is facing, is unbearable. This is spiritual affliction. He says in verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. Jonah is feeling a separation from God, from his grace, from God's love. While physical affliction is certainly true affliction, the true pain of any affliction is that a is that, that we feel separated from God, a feeling that God has abandoned us, that his love, that his, his providential care for our lives is no longer abiding with us. When we lose a loved one, when a, a longstanding friendship or relationship or even a marriage ends, when illness and death press upon us, any time we're tempted to say, why God? Why me? Why now? 
It's in those moments that we're tempted to doubt God's love for us. And as Ruth prayed this morning, we see that that's actually a temptation to sin. Because we know that in Christ, God loves us, that he's a loving father. But at the moment, it appears not to be the case. We doubt what we know to be true about God. We doubt his love. It's certainly not sinful to voice our suffering. In fact, we see here that we must But it's dangerous to question the faithfulness or the kindness of God in it. Psalm 31 says, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. It's it's in our alarm, in our quick judgment, that we say, "I'm, I'm cut off from God. He doesn't care about me anymore. The real weight of affliction is that it makes us feel that we're removed from the presence of God, from sweet communion with him, from his love. Communion with God is the greatest joy a human can experience. We were made for it. Uh, In the book of John, Jesus says that knowing God intimately is eternal life itself. And in 1 John, that book is written so that our joy may be complete in fellowship with the Father and Son. But this joyful communion that every Christian knows can sometimes be pulled away from us. As we read in in the, the London Baptist Confession of Faith this morning, uh, there, there are several causes for this feeling of, of distance from God, of not walking in sweet communion with him. Uh, just to recap, those were negligence in preserving it on our part, by falling into some specific sin that wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by sudden, some sudden or strong temptation, by God withdrawing the light of his face and allowing even those who fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. But the assurance we're given in that same paragraph of the confession is that even in those dark times, the Christian is not without the seed of God, the life of faith, the love of Christ and fellow believers, sincerity of heart, and conscience of duty. And we see in the last line of that paragraph that the purpose of those things that God's kindly given us is to keep us from utter despair. So Do not despair, Christian, when you face affliction. Rather, see God's mercy in your affliction. See how kind God is to Jonah by rescuing him from his rebellion by afflicting him. God in this affliction is pulling back the curtain of his common grace that's covering Jonah just for a moment so he can see the depths of of judgment, the depths of what it is to be apart from God, how kind it is of God to do this to Jonah while he's alive, though he's in this, uh, what Jonah describes as the pit, the, the grave in this coffin of the whale, he's still alive and he still has hope. Were God not to give this kind glimpse of judgment, Jonah would be liable 
to see it in its full in eternity. So be honest when affliction weighs on you, whether it's sudden, heavy, and an experience of death, whether it's the slow drip of building responsibilities, or maybe it's spiritual lethargy that's the fault of our own that results in a heart that's far from the joy that we once knew, whether it's because of unrepentant sin or the sin of another, or whether it's totally out of human's control, view your affliction right and view it fully. View it rightly and view it fully. Don't minimize it. Don't minimize it uh, and say, oh, it's, it's not that bad. It's this depression that's been weighing on me for weeks on end. I can get through it. And don't blow it out of proportion. On the other hand, don't call what is not trauma, trauma. View it rightly and bring it to God in prayer. Part of being honest about our affliction is seeing both God's role and our role in it. Seeing both God's role and our role in it. Jonah acknowledges that his affliction is brought on by God. Though we saw in chapter 1 that the sailors were the one, uh, the ones who threw him overboard, we see in verse 3, Jonah saying to God, you cast me into the deep. He calls them your waves and your billows. We must see God's hand in our affliction. It's the only way to keep us from despair. Christian, if what's afflicting you is random, if it's a chance event, or even worse, if it's, if it's the result of an untethered devil, then we are without hope. We have no, there's no telling what the end of our affliction will be. But if God is present in our affliction, then we can be sure that that affliction has meaning. Uh, the other week, I was on uh, the campus of UMKC, where we often go and, and do evangelism, where we hand out gospel tracts and try and start conversations with students. And one of, the conver- uh, one of the questions I like to use is just asking them what their major is. And the reason is uh, most students will assign deep meaning to what they're doing. They, they're looking for purpose in life. Uh, there's the rare, honest student that says, you make a lot of money if you're in business. But most people uh, are, are, are pursuing a major for some form of fulfillment. Uh, so I was talking to this, this agnostic student who was pursuing pharmacology. The reason he was doing that was because his girlfriend in high school for two years suffered and died of cancer. Um, he watched her go through the, uh, the chemotherapy, and he was dedicating his life to finding um, drugs that will help people in similar situations. But that same event caused him to lose his faith. He was, on one hand, saying that this event was random, that there's no God in control of these things, and on the other hand, assigning deep meaning to it. I pled with him to see that you cannot have it both ways. You either have uh, this, this figment of your imagination in meaning, this, this thing that's not really meaningful that you're projecting onto it, or you have true meaning because of the God that he knows exists is the one who brought this affliction. 
If God is the one who wisely and lovingly doles out affliction, we can see good meaning even in the deepest suffering. We can say with Joseph, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So Jonah sees God's hand in his suffering, but he also sees his own hand in his suffering. I I admit, I even said to Mark earlier this week as I was studying this passage, I didn't see any confession in this this prayer. And that's a pretty conspicuous absence for someone who's been blatantly rebelling against his God. But if you look down in verse 9, Jonah offers sacrifice to God. And what else causes a need to sacrifice but sin? Jonah, in the belly of the whale, unable to move, is unable to offer up bulls and goats for his rebellion that he's well aware of. But what he does do is offer an acceptable sacrifice of confession and thanksgiving. Psalm 51 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Next, as we're we're moving through some elements of Jonah's prayer, as the prayer of any afflicted Christian, we see that Jonah's prayer is scriptural. Uh, Jonah quotes or alludes to no less than ten psalms in these eight short verses, one of which uh, we prayed through and confessed this morning in Psalm 42. All alone in this dark, wet, crushing belly of the whale, Jonah's been stripped of all distraction, all resources, any earthly comfort. All he has is the scripture that he has memorized, that he's hidden in his heart. So, Christian, memorize scripture. We have greater access to the Bible than any generation in history. All of us in this room are literally walking around with one in our pocket at all times. But proximity to God's word is not the same as possession of God's word. Don't mistake proximity to God's word for possession of God's word. Psalm 119 says... I have stored up your word in my heart. Not on his nightstand, not on his bookshelf, not on his phone. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If we want to be changed by scripture, we ought to memorize scripture. But anyone can memorize scripture. There are atheists, I'm sure, that have more scripture memorized than me, to my great shame. But it helps them not at all. We must seek to apply Scripture, to have it sink into our hearts and change us so that we love what we are reading and reciting to ourselves. In chapter 1, Jonah makes uh, this wonderfully true theological statement. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, Who made the sea and the dry land. But he says that while he's continuing in open rebellion against his God. After his affliction in the fish, however, he's been taught 
to cry out from his heart, to pray along with the psalmist. He's confessing his sin, and now he offers genuine praise to God. Memorize scripture and seek to be changed by it. Memorizing scripture will allow us to respond quickly to any situation uh, with true and a prayerful response. Affliction doesn't wait for us to get home to, to our armchair or our couch or wherever we like to do our morning devotionals. Uh, it doesn't let us to give, give, always give us the chance to, to flip through the Bible to find an appropriate passage. Memorizing scripture, though, allows us to address affliction in the moment with God-breathed truth. Whether or not we have scripture memorized, we can pray scripture as Jonah does. We can read through a psalm, a prayer of Paul's or of Christ's, uh, really any passage, and we can pray alongside it. We can pray that those words would be true in our hearts. We can pray that we would know and delight in them. We can pray them for other members at Warnell Road through your directory. We can pray that God would do what he says to do in his word. And that is uh, how Gary Miller, a theologian, defines prayer. He, uh, he says, prayer is calling on God to come through on his promise. Calling on God to come through on his promise. And where do we find God's promises but his word? God's not promised health and, and wealth and every dream for you and your family coming true, but he has made con concrete promises in his word, in Christ, to bless his people. So search through scripture for those promises and pray alongside them. When you look at your own prayer life, do you find yourself praying more for relief from circumstances than deliverance from your own sin? Are you viewing sin as a greater problem than anything else in your life? Sin is your greatest problem. It's not your boss. It's not your, an illness you're facing. It's not your spouse. Do your prayers reflect what is the greatest problem in your life? When you look at your prayer life, do you see yourself complaining more than you pray? I would say often I'm guilty of this one. My first response is to call a friend to complain out loud rather than going to God in prayer. Do you complain more than you pray? So lastly, as we're looking at Jonah's prayer, we see that it's ultimately outward. Uh, what do I mean by that? What, that Jonah's prayer ultimately is directed outward. Uh, though he's, he's looking at his own affliction, he's looking at himself, his ultimate hope is outside himself. He says in verse 4 and then again in verse 7 that he looks to God's holy temple. And that brings us to our second main point this morning. The afflicted Christian's hope is in Christ. The afflicted Christian's hope is in Christ. Jonah looks to the holy temple. He's looking to the place in the old covenant where God has ordained worship to, to be directed. The Jews 
good believing Jews, that is, uh, certainly believed that God was infinite, that he was eternal. He could not be contained in a small house built by man. But a good believing Jew would follow the worship that God has ordained. God has called in the Old Testament for prayer uh, to be directed towards the temple. This is what God has instituted in the Old Covenant. Because this is how God dwelled among his people. God dwelled among his people through the temple. And who is God dwelling among us but Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. John 2 calls Christ the true temple. The temple was a shadow of Christ. It was a a picture of God among us. Jonah's hope was in the temple. Jonah's hope was in Christ. The psalmists, if you read through the psalms, uh, often when they're under affliction, call to mind God's gracious deliverance from uh, Egypt in the Exodus. They look to that truth to remind them of God's faithfulness. Jonah looks to the temple to remind him of God's faithfulness. And so we, even in this passage, look to Christ as a reminder of God's faithfulness and his love for us. We're given here in Jonah 2 a picture of the gospel. Christ is not only the temple, he's the greater Jonah, the one who says that we have been given now in Christ the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is that hundreds of years before Christ's coming, we're given this picture of death and resurrection and the, the, the salvation of a rebellious sinner through it. While Jonah's punishment, though, was for himself, Christ's punishment was on behalf of others. Jonah was crying out in great distress because of the results of his own sin. He had brought himself into this situation, going down, down, down to Joppa, to the ship, to the sea, rather than following God and arising and going to Nineveh. Jesus, as he's preparing to face suffering, not for his own sin, but others, like Jonah, responds in prayer. As he's preparing to taste death, uh, to taste the wrath of God, where the waves of God's judgment will crush him, will wash over him, he cries from the depth of his soul. He falls on his face. He sweats drops of blood. Matthew 26 says, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, who's facing the greatest affliction any man can face, the fullness of God's wrath, responds in prayer. He responds in a perfect prayer. He's acknowledging his affliction and showing complete trust and resignation to the divine will. Jesus faces this for our sake in order to accomplish the divine plan from eternity past 
that involves his suffering, his death, and his resurrection in glory. Hebrews 2 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In order to rescue man from death, Christ endured the suffering of death on our behalf. In him, death is put to death. How can God accept a sinful rebel like Jonah? How can he accept one who rebels against his commands like you and like me? If he tosses us into the ocean for a few days, if he plunges us into illness, is our suffering sufficient to atone from our, for our sins? No, it, it cannot and it does not atone for our sins. Take them away. But Christ's suffering and death can and it does. He was the perfect sinless man who offered a perfect sacrifice acceptable to God so that through him we can be reconciled to God. How can God accept a sinful rebel like Jonah? What was fuzzy and unclear in the Old Testament, what was confusing maybe even to Jonah, is clear now in the New Testament. As we read Jonah... We might ask, why doesn't God just find another willing prophet? Why does Jonah have to be thrown into the sea? Why is God doing this? How can Jonah possibly say, after all this rebellion, that he will again look upon his holy temple? What's fuzzy in the Old Testament is clear to us in Christ. How God can show mercy how he can forgive sin, why there are all these pictures of death and resurrection in the Old Testament is clear now that we see that the main character of the entire Bible is Christ. Romans 3 says, in clarity to this, this problem, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God was patient with Jonah. He wasn't ignoring his sin. He wasn't atoning for it by Jonah's own suffering. But he was waiting to deal with Jonah's sin on the cross. Just as he's dealt fully with yours and with mine. See, Jonah's suffering points us to the suffering Savior. And as Jonah was not left in the fish, Jesus was not left in the tomb. Christ, in his great suffering, felt through his affliction what it is to be abandoned by God. 
as Jonah cries out, I'm driven from your sight, but then reminds himself of the truth that he will again look upon your holy temple. Similarly, Jesus cries out while he's on the cross, the first verse of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the Trinity is not ripped asunder. Jesus knows the rest of the psalm. He knows that the second half of the psalm praises God for his certain salvation. He knows as he's going down to death that he certainly will be raised up by his faithful father. As God delivered Jonah, he delivered his son from the grave. And all who have faith in him, all who have been united to Christ who has been raised, will be raised up with him. Salvation is of the Lord. Because that's true, because we have a certain hope in Christ, the Christian, you, me, member of Warnell, we rejoice that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's our final point this morning. The afflicted Christian rejoices that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the cry of every true Christian, that salvation from start to finish is solely of the Lord from beginning to end. Salvation is nothing but God's saving, transforming, securing, and certain grace. That's what Christians have been saying since Christ's death and resurrection. It's what we will be saying in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 7 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, that's the cry of every Christian, as Mark said uh, before his pastoral prayer. Paradoxically, it's the Christian who has been greatly afflicted, who can with most clarity see and rejoice in that truth. Seeing God's mercy that we see ultimately comes through Christ. In God's mercy, Jonah is saved not only from the belly of the fish, but through his affliction, he is saved from his rebellion, from being cut off by God. God could have left him in his sin, let him run and sail as far away from God's will as humanly possible. But God has afflicted Jonah and brought him to the point where with thanksgiving, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. What was once offensive to Jonah is now his delight. Jonah saw God as the God of Israel, but God is teaching Jonah through affliction and teaching us in the book of Jonah that God is the God of Jew and Gentile alike. Jonah now sees that he was as rebellious as the pagan Ninevite. He neither deserves God's grace nor has earned it, not one's nationality, good works, intelligence, humility. Nothing at all can merit God's favor. That's what makes grace, grace. It is unmerited favor. 
And this was once offensive to us as well. When we were outside of Christ, we, we all say, surely there is some goodness in me that causes God to, to, to like me, to accept me. If you're offended at the freeness of God's salvation or the fact that not one of us deserves it, you are not delighting with Jonah that salvation is of the Lord. We see Jonah mock idols precisely for their inability to save, their, dis, their difference from Yahweh. No idol has ever saved anyone from sin, but by gracious Affliction. God has stripped us of our impotent idols, especially our idols of self and self-righteousness. When we're afflicted and we see that our idols cannot rescue us, they cannot restore the peace that we once felt. When we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, it is then when we as Christians are being given new hearts and new minds that are softened through affliction, that see the goodness of the truth, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Knowing this, we see our affliction in new light. We can, as we read in Ephesians 1 this morning, offer that refrain in Ephesians 1 the, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's true because we see that God works all things, even our affliction, to the praise of his glorious grace. So we praise him because of it. Not only that, but we see the goodness to us in his affliction. We see that through suffering and affliction, God is good. Our affliction is not purposeless, but when we face it now, knowing that salvation is of the Lord, we pray along with Paul that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christian, God has saving and sanctifying purpose in your affliction. Are you praying for eyes to see that? Finally, I want to offer two ways we as members of Warnell Road can help one another to do that. First, at Warnell Road, ask other members, ask our friends, our covenant family here, about ways they have been afflicted. It's part of their story. You can't know Jonah after he's been through this if you don't know his experience in the whale. You can't know Mark. You can't know Ernie. You can't know Christopher if you don't know the suffering they've been through. Don't be afraid to ask about that. And when you're asked that, Warnell member, be quick to show how God has been faithful in that affliction. Don't leave it at affliction, but show God's faithfulness in it. So ask members about ways they have been afflicted in the past. Second, ask about current affliction. Ask about what people are going through. Don't be afraid also to pray for them on the spot. So when you ask people about affliction, don't be afraid to seem too pious or overly spiritual when you're offering prayers for them then and there. Not only then and there, but also write those things you find out in your member directory. We all have 
members' directories with pictures of everyone. Write a little note so as you pray through, you can pray specifically for ways we are being afflicted. As we go through and, and pray through those directories, we're, we're spending time watchfully in prayer, unlike Jonah, who was sleeping while the, uh, the pagans on the ship were praying in chapter 1. We ought to be watchful in prayer for ourselves and for one another. Through these ways, we are hopeful, Christian, that we are encouraging one another to see affliction as William Cooper encouraged us to do so. Saying, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we are weak, we are feeble, we are often beaten down by the waves of your affliction, and we are blind to the good realities that are behind them. We pray that we would see your goodness in your word, see your goodness in Christ, and through those things, ultimately see your goodness in our affliction. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.